Hello and welcome back to another episode of Building Local Power. I am your co-host, Reggie Brucker. And on this episode of the season we're calling How to Get Away with Merger, we move away from mergers and acquisitions in the waste industry, but stay on the topic of how corporate consolidation hurts our ability to preserve our land and our planet for the strength of our communities today and the health of communities tomorrow. We're going to talk energy utilities, and to get into it, let me throw it over to my co-host, who is pure sunshine and the wind in building local power sales, Luke Gannon. What's up, Luke? Aw, thank you so much, Reggie. You are too sweet. Avangrid, backed by its parent company, Iberdrola, tried to buy public service company of New Mexico, known locally as PNM. But let's jump right into the interview. Marielle Nanasi is the executive director of the New Energy Economy in New Mexico. The New Energy Economy strives to build a renewable energy future for our collective health and environment. In 2021, New Mexicans said no to Avangrid buying PNM. But Avangrid didn't take no for an answer and appealed to the New Mexico Supreme Court. Just last month, Marielle argued against the merger. And today, we have the pleasure of having her on the show to hear exactly what is happening. So thank you so much for joining us, Marielle. Thank you for having me. I want to start off by sort of taking a step back and looking at what the energy industry looks like in New Mexico as a whole. So can you tell us who are the big players and how much of the market do they control? So PNM is called Public Service Company of New Mexico. They are the largest electric monopoly in New Mexico, and they have about 530,000 customers. There's only 2 million um, people in New Mexico, and PNM serves about 72%, I think, of the entire New Mexico market. There's a number of um, small uh, electric co-ops um, that are that are mostly in the rural areas. And then there are two other electric monopolies, El Paso Electric in the southern portion of our state and um, and also Southwest Public Service that has an even smaller um, the smaller monopoly. But both the other um, IOUs, investor-owned utilities, um, you know, are also monopoly utilities. And then so, Mariel, can you... Jump into what was it about sort of the makeup of the market, the interest of the players that had Iberdrola and Avangrid interested in wanting to merge with PNM? What what were they looking to accomplish? So let me just say that Avangrid is a thirty something billion dollar comp- company in the United States and has multiple um, subsidiary monopoly utilities, um, including gas and electric utilities. Ibadrola is its parent, and Ibadrola owns 81.5% of Avangrid. And Ibadrola is like a $136 billion company, um, and it's a worldwide company with most investments in um, in gas and nuclear and then wind. Avangrid is looking to expand the market in the United States, and particular in the West. Basically, what happened was is there was a cap on the profits, if you can imagine that, in, in Spain, where Ibadrola is dominant. 
Um, and so it was looking to expand its financial portfolio. They have had a history, Ibadrola has, of being kicked out of a couple of Central American and South American countries. And so, and just sold off a big portion of their Mexican interests. And so they had a bunch of cash and they wanted to spend it and try to, what they said, literally what they were calling to form a beachhead, um, which is a military term from where you land and then you further attack. And that's what the CEO testified to um, when he um, was testifying at the merger proceedings um, when they attempted to um, merge with PNM. And New Energy Economy um, led the opposition to that merger. Do you want to get a little bit more background on this? You said Avangrid is looking to expand the market in the U.S., and they have already tried doing that sort of on the eastern part of the United States in Maine. So can you give us a little background into some of these states that they have tried to expand in and sort of why that has helped guide your research and your fight against them in New Mexico? Yeah, so just like a college admission person um, looks at the grades that you have when you're in high school or uh, a landlord looks at a tenant's, you know, past history uh, or when you're buying a car, you look under the hood, we start to dig into the past background, the track record, essentially, of Avangrid in Maine, um, where it owns Central Maine Power in Connecticut, where it owns United Illuminating, in New York, where it owns two um, uh, electric and gas utilities. And what we found was that their history was atrocious. An electric utility has to do two primary things. One is provide electricity. The second is bill customers for it. And they failed on both. Um, and so the outage record, the blackouts, the brownouts, the billing atrocities, atrocities. I mean, they called it in New York a billing crisis. Uh, have you ever seen wow. 32 legislators in New York rally, actually pre perform a demonstration when Avangrid asked for its latest uh, rate increase there in New York? And um, you know, and then the governors of Maine and, and New York in particular have really spoken out against um, the track record of Avangrid and its subsidiary utilities and used words like their performance was abysmal, the governor of Maine called it. So we had a lot to go on. And and really, there was this, this scathing audit um, that happened that was concluded and, and filed in the Maine docket in the regulatory docket about one month before our hearing it detailed the malfeasance and incompetencies of Avangrid and said that they were more interested in shareholder profits than they were in performing basic services and so that was a very important um and influential report because first of all it was 130 pages and it and as i said it it was it gave a methodical it was an audit a woman in a mobile home got a $1300 electric bill you know which is crazy and yes. then also and then when they tried to call customer service to complain about it, for ye it took them three years to to fix the billing problems, and people would be waiting on um, on the phone for hours and hours, and would never get their bills um, corrected. And anyway, there's a class action lawsuit pending as a result of that that billing 
debacle in Maine, let alone the billing crisis in New York. So this is this is not the kind of company that we wanted to come. We want to transition as quickly as possible from fossil fuels to renewables, which in New Mexico, we have an abundance of solar and wind. And advocates track record in that department is also not good. They have a great PR firm, which has three beautiful little leaves on it as their logo. But the fact of the matter is they have 2% solar in their entire portfolio. They support hydrogen, which we're opposed to, and they support nuclear, which we're also opposed to, and they support gas. And then also they have so much money that they undermine the democratic process by investing heavily in PACs, um, you know, political action committees that undermine the democratic process. They've invested in other kinds of associations like Edison Electric Institute um, and other gas associations that that work to undermine climate legislation in Connecticut, in in other places. And there was a Brown University report that was done about the companies and the agencies um, that are hired by those you know, companies and that deny climate or or work hard to postpone climate legislation uh, or water it down. And they found that Avangrid was one of the top offenders. There, there is basically no reason that we want Avangrid to come and merge with PM. So that's why we fought it. Uh, and against all odds, we won. It was a, a huge David and Goliath fight, but we won in front of the hearing examiner. We won in front of a bipartisan, unanimous um, public regulation commission in, in a huge victory. And then they appealed, and we just defended our victory before the New Mexico Supreme Court. Can you walk us through the dates of? when this is all happening. So they filed their case in November of 2020. The hearing on the merger was in August of 2021. The decision to deny the merger was in December of 2021. Avangrid and P&M um, and Ibadrola jointly appealed to the New Mexico Supreme Court a month later in January 2022. And last month, I argued the uh, uh, to defend the uh, victory on appeal in the New Mexico Supreme Court. So sometime, I imagine that somewhere in no- November or December, but maybe January, we will hear a decision from the New Mexico Supreme Court. In this three-year span, there has been a lot of organized opposition from the public. This season is called How to Get Away with Merger. It's, you know, about a lot of these mergers that go through. This is actually our first that hopefully doesn't. So can you talk about what were, you know, the strategies that you all used? How how did you how did you do this? <laughs> well, first of all, Every single day, I worked about 12 hours for about eight months. But I had a great team. And also, we had a multi-layered strategy. So there was a political strategy. There was a legal strategy. There was a communication strategy. And it was a sort of no stone left unturned kind of effort. There was a lot of grassroots efforts. You know, this was in particular, a really a bad idea because of Avangrid's track record. We had a lot of of material to work with. We put up a really good legal fight. I didn't lose a single motion during the entire 
case and we fought really hard. Plus, there was this pending criminal case against the CEO of Ibadrola in Spain for forgery and bribery and um, and for following environmentalists for opposing um, their gas plant that they were proposing. They had so much money. They gave so much money to Michelle Lujan Grisham, who's the governor of New Mexico. They definitely spread the wealth around to try to buy their way in. And we just got lucky with a courageous administrative law judge who wrote a spectacular 450-page recommended decision recommending against the merger. But we also, like, we laid out the facts, so we did a good job in that way. And, you know, the other thing is, is they wanted to consolidate the market, and they said so. They said, we want to, you know, we want to create a beachhead and consolidate the market. We don't need a consolidation of the market. That wouldn't be a, a good thing for New Mexico. We want a robust renewable energy competitive market. And so we want to move away from the 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 monopoly stranglehold and and really open up the market. You've spoken about it a little bit, but sort of this visioning question on, you know, what would this mean for communities? What would this mean for New Mexicans, you know, across the state if if it's blocked? Like how would this sort of restore a, a just energy future? I've alluded to some of the shenanigans that um, Avangrid has has been involved in in other places, you know, funding of PACs and big campaign political contributions, um, which I think that they doubled from 20 to 21 or 21 to 22. Um, But that's where they're going. Right. Um, That's who they are. And, you know, we know what the result of that is, right? That's how we're at this crisis of climate, which is the undermining of democracy. And we see that in the United States Congress, and we see that in our states. Um, we see that, uh, you know, in Ohio and Illinois with campaign contributions to to bail out um, to bail out utilities for the terrible decision making that they've that they've engaged in whether it's whether it's nuclear or coal and this would put that on steroids because pnm frankly does all that stuff but they they don't do a lot of it it's 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 they're like minor leagues but avangrid and ibadrola have so much money and so much access to cash you know like they pay for for their awards you know what i mean and then they go and say oh we're an ethical company because we've actually paid for an ethical right. award right. um you know like crazy stuff right but they just do it and do it and do it and then we're like you know as grassroots activists and and we we're like trying to dig up the truth about all of this stuff. So it would make it much more difficult if they were here. Um, but we want to move away from a monopoly, electric monopolies. We want to m- move towards public power and we want to have more choices like community solar. And we want to uh, have and, of course, get more access for low income folks to have solar on their roofs. Um, because that's really about building self-sufficiency, right? And so we want to move in the exact opposite direction and create more democracy, more energy democracy. That's why we fought them. And that's what we're hoping to invest in and invest in our communities, people-powered solar and locally owned solar. And it's great. You exude passion and energy 
and and a lot of like sort of strategic smarts about this work and how to succeed in this work. So the question is, uh, is there a book that you would recommend to folks out there who are interested in this issue, who are concerned about sort of utility monopolies and corporate control over, you know, the uh, necessary infrastructure? Well, I have to say that, first of all, I think that all issues are connected. And so race and class and energy and democracy, all of these things are are interwoven. So I'm just going to tell you my favorite people, um, Brian Stevenson <laughs> from mm. uh, Equality Justice. Uh, and uh, sometimes when I'm down, I, I just listen to him because um, I used to be a criminal defense lawyer and you know, he defends people who are on death row and and innocent people as well as as not. And so I love him and respect him and find him motivational and just really has the North Star for justice. So that's somebody who I love. Um, Naomi Klein is another person I love. I'm going to get her new book, Doppelganger. I saw the interview on Democracy Now! with her uh, about that. And I'm fascinated because we're, we are living in very dark times. And um, there is uh, a growth of fascism. And we have to um, take that extraordinarily seriously. And basically what she's saying is you can't look away. Um, and so I think that that is is super important right now for us. And then in terms of just energy, <laughs> um, there's a book called Energy Democracy, which I would say is uh, kind of like a Bible. And it's about the liberation of people from the energy monopolies and their enormous control. This reporter said to me, why do you keep fighting, Marielle? You know you're gonna lose, money's gonna win. And they just have all the money. And I said, I just said, well, if that's what happens, it happens, but I'm gonna speak the truth and I'm gonna tell people like it is. And then look, we won. If you give up, you already have lost, right? The only chance is if we fight back. And so, you know, um, so we gotta use our talents to do so. And then, and then we have a chance, we have a chance. So, and you know, love and family and, the earth is worth fighting for. Once again, a big thanks to Marielle Nanasi at New Energy Economy for joining us on the show today. Please find all of the resources that Marielle mentioned in the show notes. On the second half of today's episode, we are hearing from Crystal Curley, the Executive Director of Indigenous Lifeways and a member of Public Power New Mexico. But before we jump into that, I'm going to pass it to my co-host, who lights up all of my days, Reggie Rucker. Over to you, Reggie. Thank you, Luke. So look, I know I'm one of the lucky ones. I consider myself to be optimistic about our prospects for the future. But every time I get to hear someone like Marielle share her story and Crystal, who's coming up next, share hers, I'm reminded why this isn't just a naive optimism, a fanciful hope. I know these corporate powers have the big money, the connections, and the influence, but they don't have Marielle. They don't have Crystal. And that's where my optimism comes from. And from talking with these folks, I know what they need is our optimism, our belief in them, and in us. It fuels their work. It gives them the energy and the motivation to continue. 
which is why we need to build the army of people who believe, who have hope, to fuel the folks who are making a difference in their communities, for all communities. And you can help build this army by sharing this episode with some folks who care about this work and just need a bit of optimism to know we can and will win these fights. So if you'll forget later, pause this episode, share it with the first couple of folks who come to mind, and then come right back as Luke takes you through another powerful story. Stick around. On the second half of today's show, Crystal Curley emphasizes how Mother Earth has provided us with everything to sustain our lives. In return, we must take care of her. She underlines the harms that large utility companies have on people and the land. But let's start from the beginning of her story. Here's Crystal. My name is Crystal Carley. And I'm from a place called Chachalta. It's about 20 south, 20 miles south of Gallup, New Mexico, and headed towards Zuni's Pueblo. So I like to say I have best best of both worlds living on my ancestral homelands. Um, I think when I speak about my clans, I'm towering house um, and born for the Red House clan. My Nullies, my my paternal grandfathers are the one who walks around. And then my maternal uh, grandparents are the um, Mexican people clan. And so I feel like my clans have a lot to do with my upbringing. For two of my clans, they're one of the original four clans. And so with that, you have a lot of obligations. And I think it's just a natural way of being in leadership. And um, so I really like to recognize the matriarchs that have raised me. My grandmother, she was there, I believe, well, I know. Well, the one that I know personally, but I know my ancestors have really just paved the path for me. But my grandmother, um, my mom's mom, she has just been very influential in the social justice movement. She, when she was about 23, she didn't know that much English. And this was 1940s. And she went to the Bay Area and she lived majority of her life until she had Alzheimer's she had to move back but when she started living there um, she started learning English from our African-American relatives and they started figuring out and recognizing our struggles out on the reservation where my grandma's from and they really encouraged my grandma to um, speak out we didn't have running water or electricity And so they really encouraged my grandma to go home and start a petition. And so my mom helped with that petition. We finally got running water. My mom also was right under the wing of my grandma. So, you know, like my mom was able to be at Alcatraz takeover uh, when Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated. uh, My grandmother marched along with her sisters um, and recognize the the urgency for for social justice, civil rights, and so that in, was very instilled into my mother, um, my father as well. He 
um, had a, you know, wild upbringing. He's a residential school survival, boarding school survivor. And so the church really took him over. But what saved my, my mom and my dad's life was the American Indian movement. And so that brought my, my parents together. And so I like to uh, say that I'm an AIM baby <laughs> because that's the lens and that's the perspective that I was raised in. So I was raised going to Mother Earth gatherings, going to different um, just gatherings, just as an infant. Um, I was at the DELCON first gathering for environmental uh, for Indigenous Environmental Network gathering. I was just a baby. And so my mom tells all these stories. And so that's how I was raised, just going to these big gatherings. Um, I, uh, you know, just as elementary school student, you know, one of my first real intense marches was at the take uh, a demonstration against the Los Alamos test site laboratories here in Los or near Los Alamos in Los Alamos and so I was able to I was only eight years old but I was able to see you know our people like West Duty and other um, supporters get arrested that day and so I just really have recognized and know the impacts of colonization of capitalism um, how we got into the environmental justice movement is when we got water they never tested uh, our water for any kind of contam contamination. So there were low levels amounts of uranium inside of our water. So that um, uh, from that experience, there was a lot of health impacts from that in my community. And so my mom got into the uranium um, awareness, education, and really advocating against uh, uranium mining and development extraction and so the southwest indigenous uranium form is how indigenous lifeways grew out of that initiative over 30 years ago um and so for indigenous lifeways i'm the executive director for uh that's where our work is based out of is that work from um doing uranium forums locally regionally nationally and internationally with other indigenous uh, frontline communities across the world that have been impacted against environmental racism. Crystal is the executive director of Indigenous Lifeways, an organization that began its journey three decades ago with the Southwest Indigenous Uranium Forum. Over the years, Indigenous Lifeways has expanded its mission to address the global impact of environmental racism on Indigenous communities. Our work really stems from is really advocating and bringing awareness education to our communities about the different impacts of extraction um, going beyond just uranium but uh, we have 140 years of extraction from coal industry first uh, there's the railroad there's oil and gas now there's fracking um, now there's hydrogen, and my community is made up of nearly 80% Indigenous identifying folks. So that really paints a picture of, you know, where I'm from and, you know, the impacts of these extraction industry. I 
my family likes to call them war criminals and energy war criminals these these types of um industry and so we know the tactics that they use how they mislead us the propaganda that is used the millions of dollars that's funneled to propaganda greenwashing um so how it funnels down to us it's the same tactics that they use for coal you know it's economic development it's jobs it's you know it's you know we're going to bring in all this funding and you know your family is going to be able to you know buy a house and vehicles and when you're talking to a community that doesn't have that you know we really have a lot of impacts on housing transportation issues um i mean the list can go on but um yeah what sustains us and sustains the movement of our work is ceremony and recognizing sacred sites recognizing our traditional stories around these elements that we're protecting of water of our land the plants the animals the microorganisms the air even the fire that's within mother earth you know that's what we're trying to protect indigenous lifeways and the new energy economy have had a long-standing relationship with the commitment to put electricity back into the hands of the people. Marielle helped inform ally organizations about the Avangrid and PNM merger, including Indigenous Lifeways. The very sneaky ways that these utility companies are able to mislead our communities. We know PNM isn't for the people. We know these utility companies are just in it for themselves and wanting to make money. We know PNM and a lot of these places where they get power from is in our homelands and uh, the four corners. And so it's not surprising, unfortunately, that PNM would consider doing these types of mergers with Avangrid that doesn't have a, um, it just has a, a laundry list of crimes that they've done against people. Really just misled, not just our communities, um, not just in New Mexico, not just on, on with the Navajo Nation, but it's across the world. These multi-million billion dollar companies that um, have the capacity to mislead and hire people to greenwash advertisement to they have there's these scientists and they're misleading data to prove their points but you know when it's really when we're able to expose these these data expose their financial schemes for climate change. And what we're trying to do is just expose the false solutions that they're wanting to promote in this time. So I'm also a PNM uh, consumer. They don't tell consumers about these types of mergers or tell them the effects of it, what the long-term um, implications are for these contracts that they're, that they're doing. And when we're not given the chance to choose or know where our power comes from, you know, that really displaces our people and our opportunities to really do a, a good job at um, uh, phasing out fossil fuels, even in our own use. So when our, our opportunities are limited from these, 
utilities and they're misleading us, telling us that hydrogen's the way or clean nuclear or clean coal's the way, then this is where it really causes a problem and, and misleads our, our tribal government, our local leaders, our, our organizers, and it causes a divide in our people on what's really the truth and what are we really protecting. These large utility companies like Avangrid are extracting power, natural resources, and wealth from communities. Crystal envisions a world where there is a restored connection between people and the land. For me, bringing back the connection to the natural world for all people, what severed that connection is colonization and capitalism. That's what it's based off of for thousands of years. And so for us as just mere human beings from all over the world, we've had this natural connection. We know the powers of the air, the wind, the earth, the fire. We know the powers of prayer. We know the powers of sacred sites all over the world. Everybody has this connection, this universal celestial knowledge of that connection to that natural world and being a natural human being. My hopes is that we continue to be in alignment with all of, our, all of the things that are around us and that this movement continues to bring out those values of humans universal all over the world. You know, we're all at, at one point are indigenous, <laughs> you know, we just have to bring it out. You know, we all have those roots, you know, talking about Chaco, talking about um, Stonehenge, you know, uh, the pyramids from all over the world. You know, these are the sacred sites. These are the knowledge that we have to continue to protect because that's our our connection to the natural world um, and beyond. So that's what I hope <laughs> and envision um, because once that is able to um, to be, then then we realize and we understand why we have to to protect the water, why we have to protect the land and our homelands and where we come from. Understand the knowledge and the stories. It it goes real deep. And I think when we're able to, to have that connection, we're healing bloodlines. We're healing our blood cells. Our blood memory is going to ignite um, when we start learning, learning these, uh, learning these ways of the natural, the natural world. Crystal has a very timely book recommendation. So one book that we really recommend to a lot of people, even before they said they were going to make a movie about it, <laughs> is <laughs> Killers of the Flower Moon. That book has been a um, an incredible eye-opener to what this industry, the bloodshed that this industry is willing to, to do to gain money and resources and land. And I am really looking forward to the movie, but I am just really, if you really want to get a really good look, I highly encourage reading the book because it has incredible testimonies at the end of bringing it to now what the Osage relatives are experiencing even to this day for generations. Um, but it's just, you know, a hundred barely a hundred years ago. 
and the Osage people were the richest people in the U.S. at that point. And to see um, that story, you know, it's going to be a really incredible movie. But, you know, like I said, it's very triggering to see what has happened to our people in the past. And from it, you know, that's where the FBI was born out of this type of incidences with indigenous people. So I really encourage you read the book because it's just like, I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put it down. I had, I read it within like days. Thank you so much, Crystal, for your stories, deep wisdom, and knowledge. It was such a pleasure having you on the show today. This episode is airing at the perfect time for Crystal's book recommendation because the killers of the Flower Moon movie airs in theaters tomorrow, October 20th. Please read the book and check out the movie. I would like to uplift a couple of resources to learn more about what Crystal mentioned in this episode. The American Indian Movement, or AIM, was founded in Minnesota in 1968 to address systemic issues of poverty, discrimination, and police brutality against Native peoples. Today, AIM supports Indigenous movements across the country. To learn more, please see the show notes where I will link to AIM's website and additional resources. To learn more about the Los Alamos testing site that Crystal mentioned, check out an episode on the Red Nation podcast called What Oppenheimer Left Out, also in the show notes. And please do check out the show notes to learn more about the incredible work of Indigenous Lifeways. Thanks for staying tuned. Yes, thank you both. And thanks to all of you for listening all the way to the end. I assume that means you like this episode, so please share it with even just one person you think will enjoy it too. We have a goal of 10,000 listens for this episode. Help us get there. And if you're not a subscriber to the podcast yet, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you know when every new episode drops. And of course, your donations are essential to help us keep this podcast going and support the research and resources that we make available on our website for free. We truly welcome and appreciate it all. And last, if you have feedback for us and want to share a story about how your community approaches this issue, send us an email to buildinglocalpower@ilsr.org. We'd love to share these on a special mailbag episode one day. We'll keep an eye out. This show is produced by Luke Gannon and me, Reggie Rucker. This podcast is edited by Luke Gannon and Andrew Frank. The music for this season is also composed by Andrew Frank. Thank you so much for listening to Building Local Power.